Dotnet Rocks episode 744 with guest Keith Brown. Recorded live Friday, February 17th, 2012. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl, it's Richard, and uh, we're here from the department of uh, it's the last show of the day department. Yeah. How you feeling? I'm okay. I, I'm, I'm running on, uh, you know, on one and a half pistons today just cause, uh, I've been, I, I pulled, uh, not an all nighter, but very close to it. Nice. Getting a new website going. I do like, uh, when we record back to back like this is you, you really get your head going. I, I have to describe it as, uh, harnessing my ADD for the forces of good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. We just get to think about different things all the time, but this is going to be a good, good, fun show. Interesting topic. So it is. I'm excited. It is. And along the uh, Raven DB line, I have some stuff to share. So let's oh. roll the music and and get going with Better Know Framework. Awesome. All right. So uh, in honor of our guest, I went out looking for a blog post, a recent blog post, where somebody was uh, talking about Raven DB, and I found. Gregor Suddy from Glasgow, Scotland. Mm-hmm. His blog is called Gregor's Work Related Blog. Net Development and more. He's, you know, okay, that's good. You know, yep. we know what it is. That's good, Gregor. So if you go to tinyurl.com slash RavenDB tools, you'll see this great post called RavenDB Useful Tools. Now, as a disclaimer, I have no idea if any of these are going to come up in the conversation, but you know, maybe they will. Uh, a list of useful tools that he came across when using RavenDB. So there's a RavenDB add-on for Glimpse. There's a RavenDB mini profiler, LinkPad. Uh, so that's a great tool that you can use to query RavenDB using link statements if you have the correct third-party driver installed. And there's a video. Cool. Uh, REST client, uh, extremely handy for testing RESTful web services, which RavenDB is. And he also has some great uh, posts and then fiddler which we all know and love so it's a it's a great post if you haven't heard of any of those and you're working with ravendb give it a shot go check it out tinyurl.com slash ravendb tools and i've popped that link into the show notes so that you can grab them awesome there you go who's talking to us richard grabbed a comment off of show 741 which was recently done with clemens vasters talking about the service bus awesome show and uh, Daniel Piesens uh, mentions to us, uh, Hi, Carl and Richard, long-time fan of the show. I was listening to your podcast with Clemens Vasters, and I'm really excited about the work he and his team are doing with the Azure Service Bus. During the podcast, you touched on scaling instances and how one could write code to accomplish it. Well, I'm ha- and what I said at the time was, you know, automated elastic scaling is hard. Yeah. It's specific. You've got to do a lot of work around it. And Daniel's point here is, I'm happy to say that this code exists. The Microsoft Patterns and Practices Group released the, quote, Enterprise Library Integration Block for Windows Azure. Whoa. Close quote. Which accomplishes auto-scaling in a very flexible way. A lot of thought went into how to set scaling limits and how not to overreact on this. Trust me, I was part of the advisory group. If listeners need to look at automated scaling, they should check it out. And he provides a link to the MSN blog site where it was originally posted. And that was from Grigor Melnick who posted it. And I will also add that link to the show sites. This is part of the enterprise library application blocks, which we know and love. We've done some great things around it. And so, yeah, there's a whole block specifically on auto scaling. And that's a dream come true for you, isn't it? Because that's oh, a drum you've been beating on the show about Azure forever. Well, not even just Azure, just cloud, just in, cloud general. in general. This right. vision of automated elasticity has always just been a vision, not a reality. Yeah. Uh, and, I mean, I've read through some of the materials and so forth. This is not a trivial thing to do. I mean, you do have to decide on what metrics you want to measure, but it does combine the the PowerShell commandlets to literally call to Azure and say, "Light me up another one of this web role and another one of this worker role," and you know, bop bop bop, turn those things on, and then same thing, 
send out those same commands to shut them back down again as the load drops off. Hmm. So the reality is you don't have to invent this. There's a set of tools here that are specifically for that and will allow you to take advantage of them. And they also have pieces in there for dealing with SQL Azure and other Azure storages, and as well as caching, and huh. it works with the service bus. Wow. So covered them all. Great. And uh, Daniel, thanks so much for the contribution. That's exactly the kind of stuff we like to see. So I'm going to send you a .NET Rocks mug. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com. And before we introduce Keith from Pluralsight, let me tell you about Pluralsight. Nice. Pluralsight is a, a recent sponsor of .NET Rocks. They provide comprehensive developer training online. They have nearly 200 hardcore developer training courses authored by MVPs and industry experts. It's probably over 200 now. They release 8 to 10 new courses every month and offer a free 10-day trial where you get 200 minutes of access to their vast library. Pluralsight offers a full curriculum on software practices, including courses on design patterns, test-first development, object-oriented design, continuous integration, and Scrum. Try Pluralsight today. Subscriptions start at $29 a month. And with that, let's introduce Keith. Keith Brown is the co-founder of Pluralsight, where he serves as the chief technical officer, ensuring that Pluralsight's content delivery platform is the best in the industry. In a past life, Keith was a contributing editor for MSDN Magazine, where he wrote the Security Briefs column for eight years as well as books on Windows security, ASP.NET, and COM. Welcome, Keith. Hi. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. It's uh, quite a, when I think about, uh, you know, issues of scale and, you know, popularity and in large files, man, video is probably about as big as it gets for consumer-facing websites. Yeah. Um, fortunately, we aren't having to do much of that work ourselves. We've... Uh, from the very beginning, we've um, really uh, pushed that out and done all that heavy lifting through uh, Amazon's cloud. Yeah. I remember talking to Aaron Sconard about that when you guys first started, and that was a, that was a great cloud story, even back then. Yeah, it was, it was, it was fun building that because we were, um, you know, it, we were pretty early adopters of that technology. That mm -hmm. was before CloudFront existed. It was really just S3, um, their simple storage service, and... It, uh, you know, it's really interesting because the only .NET code they had was a little sample that mm. had, it was riddled with bugs, you know, and we ended up having to fix stuff to get it going. But that's a story for another day, I guess. We currently use S3 for our, uh, for our uh, MP3 files, but, uh, in, in WMVs for, um, DNR TV, but we're, I'm considering moving to CloudFront. Tell us, tell us a little bit about what that is and is there, uh, analogs in other cloud offerings to CloudFront? Well, CloudFront is a, is a content delivery network. Um, Amazon has data centers all over the world. And basically what happens with it is it sits in front of your, your S3 bucket. Um, you basically create a distribution, a CloudFront distribution on top of your S3 bucket. And it basically it's just a lazy load, sort of a cache, edge caching feature. So yeah. w when somebody tries to hit your, um, your content on that network, they're routed to the, the closest data center to them that has it yeah, correct well no it's actually the closest data center to them and if it doesn't have it at that data center doesn't have that resource then it will fetch it from s3 into that particular data center and serve it up from there okay you end up uh shipping less bits through less routers uh ultimately but does it end up uh being faster for obviously for the end user but does it end up saving you money i can't say that it has um, I think that, I mean, and I think that's just really because of the vast amount of content that we have. Mm -hmm. So all of our our content is divided up into clips. So every time you watch a portion of our video, they're they're broken down into like two or three minute chunks. Yeah. Um. So they're indexed that way. So each you know each one of those is a separate file, and you know if if somebody doesn't watch one of those for a certain amount of time in a certain region. That's going to drop out of the cache eventually, um, and what's going to end up happening is it's going to get loaded into the cache again at some point, and and you're paying S3 fees for transmission between S3 and CloudFront. I see. I, I think it's been about a wash, honestly, but I know that our our performance has gotten a lot better. I mean, right. certainly for the you know certainly for the higher profile, higher um, 
you know, especially some of the things we give away free at Microsoft. Hmm. Uh, there's a bunch of courses that we have up there on the um, ASP.NET uh, website, like our MVC course. We have an MVC course up there that's free. And, um, well, actually, come to think of it, that's actually hosted on Microsoft's uh, CDN right now. So, oh. Yeah. Interesting, but I guess so. I guess the big benefit is the just availability and accessibility it, it really for is. the user. It's, yeah, that's that's really what it is. It's perf. We've also recently offloaded our static content. Um, you'll notice if you if you hit our site and look at it with Fiddler, um, you're getting static content from CloudFront as well. So all of our images and JavaScript and stuff like that. That's mm-hmm. been huge. That that's dramatically offloaded bandwidth from our web servers. Okay, so uh, let's uh, let's talk about RavenDB and SQL, sure. and moving data between them. Yeah, when did, how did this uh, how did this expertise come to you? <laughs> what was the project? I, that- I don't know that there's a lot of expertise. I think that you know we're we're certainly we're certainly learning like everybody else as we go about NoSQL. Um, Raven was our first introduction to NoSQL here at Pluralsight. Okay. Um, the reason why we went to Raven is because, frankly, we've been doing NoSQL for a long, long time just on our own using <laughs> NTFS, frankly. Yeah, right. So, okay. I mean, basically, when you know, in the old days, when we first started up our website and it was all about classroom training, right. we didn't really have that big of a need for a scalable website. You know, it was just a course catalog that was there and people could register and, you know, there wasn't nearly the amount of volume that we have today. And so when you would create a user profile on our site, that would create a file in our file system that was serialized by the XML serializer. I mean, it is, you just do the simplest thing, right? Yeah, I've done the same thing many times. Not, uh, you know, probably not even as, as uh, many users as you had, but uh, just, you know, XML files work. Yeah, yeah. And it, they're super easy to, you know, the XML serializer is a delightful thing. It, uh, versioning is just trivial moving forward as long as you know your serializer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, actually, if you're going to use Raven, um, that's the one thing you really want to be comfortable with. You want to be comfortable with the JSON serializer. Hmm. Um, that's that's what Raven uses, and it basically uses the um, the same serializer that's the JSON for Net serializer. You can look that up on the web. That's the one that they use, and it's important to know how that works so that you know when you want to add a field or something like that, you know how to migrate forward. We have existing documents out there that you're going to be deserializing and assuming a new shape for. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. So you know all about the power of ASP.NET MVC, but you might be in need of some good tools to enhance your productivity. Well, our friends at Telerik just shipped the latest release of the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC. 18 jQuery-based native MVC extensions. Now you can enhance productivity by remaining in control of your views without having to write all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript by hand. Did I mention that the Telerik MVC extensions are also free and open source? Plus, now you can check all MVC online demos in both ASPX and Razor views since the extensions offer full support for ASP.NET MVC 3 and the Razor view engine. Download your free copy today at Telerik.com slash freemvc. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. We talked with Allende about RavenDB, and uh, we also have been talking about it a little bit recently. And, you know, the, the red flag that always goes off in my head when I think about RavenDB versus SQL Server is scalability. How, how I mean... Obviously, you're not running a, a national election, but uh, you do have some scaling issues, especially I, I would imagine that when a new course is there, all of your members, you know, if it's a hot course, they all want to access that same file at the same time. Uh, does that put a, uh, any kind of load on, on your uh, database? Well, reads are, Raven's really good for reads. Okay. Um. I think, you know, there are some document databases that are really good at handling lots of writes. I think Raven is much better at have, and this is just in our experience, just from what we've seen, um, you know, just empirical evidence. Um, and most of the stuff we have in Raven is is very much read heavy. Yeah. When we do have uh, spurts of writes, um, it can get kind of expensive. I mean, we we can kind of sit there and watch the CPU crank, you know, on, as, as Raven, you know, is working in the background to update its indexes. The other thing to consider for us is that, 
you know, we, we actually, we're still in the process of migrating into Raven. Okay. So, um, you know, we have, the very first thing we put into Raven, for example, was our, um, our email system. We queue up emails into, into Raven, and then we have a daemon that, that pulls them out and, and delivers them uh, through a, a number of different strategies in order to be able to, to scale that. Because, you know, once you start sending a certain amount of email, the, you get to the point where your provider is, is going to treat you like a spammer, right. you know, even though you're sending it to legit, legitimate companies. It's a big problem when you start trying to scale that. Yeah. And so that was the first thing that we did with that. And, you know, so we still run that through there and that's been, that's been working well, but that, you know, that gets written fairly infrequently, you know, like once True. every, you know, every five seconds or so we'll have another email going out or, you know, sometimes there's, when we send out like batch notifications, there, there could be, you know, several hundred, but there, you know, it's not, not really that, that heavy, yeah. um, right wise. So that's kind of what we've, what we've experienced with it so far is that, is that when you're reading, I mean, it, it has a big cache and most stuff is, is just read out of the cache right. and it's very efficient that way. Um, but when you do see a lot of writes, at least in our experience, the, the performance can, can start to degrade a little bit. Um, I would encourage anybody who's serious about using this in a non-trivial system any any NoSQL database like this, or any any database at all, right? To actually put uh, you know some documents into the database uh, aligned with where you want to scale to, mm-hmm. yeah. and and get a feel for the performance, right? Hit hit it hit it hard, right? Try and it. You, you got to try it out, and if you don't do that, you're not really doing your due diligence. I mean, we have some um, we have some uh, code that we've written to to exercise that thing. We call it Raven Tickler. Good name. And it uh, you know just basically you know hits hits it with reads and writes and all sorts of stuff. And then you know what's been really interesting for us, and I know this is kind of where you wanted to go in this interview, was um, trying to have a stable enumeration over your database while it's changing. Right. So, for example, that that's one of the biggest uh, challenges that we've had is is figuring out how to do ETL jobs, yeah. um, where we want to scrape data out of Raven and put it into our SQL Server because you know any document database is not really great for doing reporting. The, um, the one of the challenges with a NoSQL database is that you can't do server side joins um, very easily. I mean, you, there's MapReduce, but it's it's not it's not nearly as flexible with respect to querying as a SQL database would be. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, you, you end up with this challenge of, of uh, I, you know, when you have a NoSQL database, you usually have a SQL database next to it. That's your data warehouse or something like that that you can do your queries on. And we have a nightly task that scrapes through and looks at what's in Raven and updates what's in our data warehouse based on that. Yeah. And the trick with that for us has been figuring out a way to enumerate that um, so that we are able to get a stable snapshot effectively of what's in the database as the database is changing. Right. Yeah. That was the thing that Ayende was telling us is that, you know, most of the time you really don't care if there's an update and you missed it. You just, you you know, and he gave some, a lot of examples in which that was the case. Right. You know, if it's a few seconds late, eh. (laughs) And that's really, I mean, if you can design your system with, with that in mind, and that's the way we're, we're designing ours with eventual consistency in mind. Right. Then you're going to get along a lot better with these sorts of, you know, NoSQL databases because they tend to give up, you know, they tend to rely less on consistency to give you some other features that you want, like scalability. Have we talked about MapReduce, Richard? I don't think that we've actually talked about it in, in any detail, but it's an interesting topic, you know, dealing with NoSQL and actually needing to query against it. It turns out we actually aren't even using MapReduce. Really? Yeah, we're, we're, we, we, um, we just haven't found a need for it yet. Be- because when you want to query, you query against the SQL Server? That's correct. When we want to do our, our reporting, we do it all out of SQL Server. And so we've been able to build our system without having to, to need that yet. But oh. I think a lot of people would need that. Can you walk us through what it is? Just quick yeah. overview? Basically, what it allows you to do is it's a kind of a transformation on the data that you have. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. So like the, so if you want to think of it as like um, in SQL, you could think of doing a group by and a projection. Okay. Um, where you want to like calculate some aggregate data, maybe count up the number of certain things or get the maximum or minimum and, of, of certain things and group them and then have a, a set of rows that output out of that that give you statistics over certain groups. That's effectively what you're doing with MapReduce in, in a NoSQL database. 
Okay. So the map step is basically a transform or a projection. So you've got a, um, you know, you've got some document in there that has some fields, and you are care about maybe summing up some of the fields or, or, you know, um, discovering some aggregate information about that stuff. So you you map onto a smaller type that only has those fields that you care about. And then you reduce by aggregating them in some way. Like you might sum them up, you might mm. group them, things just like that. Just trying to paint a scenario here for folks, Keith. Say we went with, and I'm just, and I'm extrapolating on your data. I want to know how many users I've got in each country. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a data set you've got and, and a reasonable thing to ask. You know, we, we're trying to figure that out. Yep, that 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 would certainly that would certainly be a, a place where you'd you'd want to use MapReduce. Yeah, that's really the only way you could do that with Raven. So the mapping is the taking some of the the fields or the members and mapping them onto a smaller set of fields and then reducing the set by aggregating. Right. So you'd aggregate over um, each each group of users that are in a certain country, and your yeah. aggregation would just be a sum. Yeah. And it's funny because the way you write these things in um, in Raven, uh, and it's just the way the database was designed, is you write those those queries in link. Hmm. So you well, use, it seems use very li- functional. You use link syntax to define that, which really, I mean, it's kind of, you can kind of think of it as syntactical sugar, because you could really go and define that in some other language or something. But that just happens to be the way that they express indexes in, um, in, in Raven. It's actually kind of cool, because if you, if you understand link, um, then it, it gives you a little bit of a leg up to be able to find those things. Although you still, as with any link provider that isn't linked to objects, you still have to know what sort of expressions and what sort of link operators your, um, your database supports. Because that's going to be basically transmitted across the wire. It, you know, the link provider is going to read that expression and parse it and transmit it to the server. The server is going to execute it. You're going to get an error back if it doesn't know how to handle a particular link operator. Mm, right. You know. So you can't just do anything you want in there, but you know it's, it's kind of a convenient syntax if you're if you're a .NET programmer. But it's going to barf immediately, right? Like if you're if you're calling to something that isn't implemented, it's just going to go, yeah, I can't do that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It would tell you. It would give you a parse error. That's right. But what I like about it is, if you are littered in SQL, here you are doing something vaguely SQL-ish mm-hmm. in Link speaking to this NoSQL data store. Like it's really doing the translation of map production, which you know. My experience with map reduction comes from the Hadoop side, where we're mm-hmm. big on distributed computing, right? We've got 40, 50 machines with the data set spread all over the place, and these map expressions are really functional. They're, they are literally, you know, using element operands, and you're like, it's not easy stuff to write. We do a lot of cut and pasting. When you get one that works, you protect <laughs> it with your life. Right, right. Yeah, the, the syntax is, is um, you know, it's it's pretty easy to do, that's for sure. And, and yeah, I'm, I got a lot of appreciation for Raven. I, I want to push on a couple other things before we dive into the real ETL side on this around using RavenDB, because I think you hit on a really important thing. I mean, I'm old enough now, I've been doing databases long enough that I remember validating transactional integrity, that we literally pulled the power plugs out on our servers to make sure where they said this transaction was written. Was it really written? Yep. You know, that kind of thing. And we just take all that for granted now because we've been using SQL Server forever. Did mm-hmm. you really batter RavenDB? I mean, one of the things I think Iandy's really proud of is it does have transactions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, when you, when you save changes to, uh, to a, um, Raven database, it either, they are atomic. I mean, they either go in or they don't. I mean, that, you know, he has a log on the server that's logging that stuff and he commits right. it. And, you know, so you can actually commit several different changes to several different documents simultaneously and then roll them back if you decide you want to um that i haven't played with right so we aren't we are we actually aren't using transactions in our system our system is purely um uh, the, the stuff that we do in raven like i said it's it's not terribly write intensive it's easy for us to take the approach of you know we're not we not we don't really have a transactional system yeah you're not trying to defend anything complex when somebody's trying to add their username and password to the system Right. I mean, it's basically last writer wins for us, and that's yeah. fine. That works fine. And, that, and if you can get away with that, it's a heck of a lot easier than having to deal with transactions and locking and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it really sort of takes a whole uh, bunch of, of database scenarios and, and 
takes them away from the traditional relational database model. Yeah, I, I, I and I'm I'm actually sitting here considering, you know, should we should we try RavenDB for uh, for our show? Because really, what we have is documents. You know, every yep. we have a show that publishes twice a week. We're updating. You know, maybe we update the admin site and all that kind of stuff, but it isn't really write intensive. And if it's if it's an hour late, it's really not that big a deal. Yeah. And of course it isn't going to be. No, and the velocity is just not that high. There's there's strength to it. But any and what I like is that you we've just sort of accepted this decomposition of data into fields and rows right. to store our data and in reality we don't want it like that. We want it in the form it was in. Exactly. Right. And that's the, that's the reason why we didn't use a SQL database to begin with at Pluralsight. It's yeah. like, it's just, it's unnatural and you don't need it. You know, I think I, it's funny because <laughs> the, the evolution of our system actually started <laughs> with a SQL database because, you know, that's where all data goes. It yeah. has to go in a relational database. Oh. And so we went down that path to start with. And, you know, we didn't have a lot of SQL administration expertise. It was the three of us, Aaron, Fritz, and Keith, you know, right. building this website, you know. And and so at one point, literally, we got to the point where SQL Server was getting into some sort of issue where we couldn't get a connection to it, and we were just having all sorts of problems. And finally, I had gotten to the point where I'd started caching stuff just to deal with this sort of thing right, in files. Yeah. And finally, I just realized, why do we need SQL? We just don't need it. Yeah. And so we ended up going to our little file system database, and it's it's uh, worked very well for us. You well, know? you know, the operating system has lots and lots of stuff in there for dealing with locks and, and reading and writing privileges. And I'm, I'm surprised at how many people don't know just about basic file permission stuff. Well, what's funny is that the vast majority of... Um, now, I'm, I'm not a SQL expert by any means, SQL Server expert, but uh, Dan Sullivan, who uh, is, is one of our authors here and is a longtime friend of ours who is an expert in that, um, you know, he, he explained to me at one point, one day he sat down, he said, you know, I don't know why you're using SQL because the vast majority of the reliability that SQL gets is from NTFS. Right. Yeah. Now you're, now you're hitting on the truth there, Keith. Hmm. Yeah. In the end, it's dependent on the OS too. Right. So what made you leave the file system approach and move to RavenDB in the first place? Because we needed to scale. So, you know, you want to have multiple web servers yeah. and, you know, if you are writing to your file system, you can't really... I know from past experience that taking locks across the network, it's sketchy, right? Yeah. So on a local file system, no problem. You know, we got retry loops and all that stuff. It works great. But when you start talking about pushing that remote, then in order to scale, that just doesn't work. You need a pipe with somebody on the other end of the pipe who's, who's managing concurrency for you. He was thinking a bit. And so you've got a centralized RavenDB server and multiple web servers talking to it? Yep, that's the that's the architecture that that we are moving towards. Right. But and and do you worry about redundancy on the Raven DB side of things? Like you're going to do a cluster or anything like that? We're looking at doing um, a warm failover. Mm-hmm. So to be able to to do, we're planning on doing replication off to just a, a passive subscriber, somebody who's just listening and not not multi master. Right. Um, to have the ability to to quickly get back up online. Well, and, and you're, you're preaching to the choir, man. I think you and me are the only ones who figured out that warm backup is the right answer most of the time. I'm sorry. Can you guys can uh, slow down a little and define some of these terms? Because if, <laughs> if, if we have listeners out there who aren't familiar with the process. Well, I guess the idea of the warm backup would be just that you've got a database that, you know, you've, you've got a, sep- a secondary database that's, um, you know, got the current transactions in it, right? You're, right? you're basically replicating to it so that if, heaven forbid, your database server were to go down, you could fire up another one pretty quickly and, and just have it ready to go. And you don't have to restore the backup. It's already there. I got I'd it. also tend to use that backup machine. Is like It's not a good machine. It's not as strong as the main one. It's a backup. It's something you can keep operating on while you figure out what's broken on your big machine. Yeah. Right, right. And the, and the other big, big distinction why you call it warm rather than hot is somebody runs a script to switch it. Hot backup, like a clustered backup, yeah. it just happens. You right. get notified. Hey, by the way, I switched. <laughs> just thought you'd like to know, <laughs> yep. which just scares the snot out oh, of you. Oh, you like, IT guys. Yeah. You know, why? you wonder why we run around angry all the time? That's why. <laughs> when computers are telling us about what they're up to, hey, I'd like you to know. I just want to write code. It makes you grumpy. So I like the warm. The nice thing about the warm solution is 
if something goes down, you look at it and you make a decision. Let's yeah. fail over. Yeah. And I have something sta- already stood up, ready to go. It was in sync and over it goes. And now we can go work on the problem. We're still up. Maybe we're slow, but we're up. Yeah. Amen. One of the things that we noticed, because uh, one of our guys here did a bunch of testing on Raven to see what 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 does it work like when you when you use replication, and we tried um, you know a number of different scenarios, and one of the ones that we were thinking about was geographically diverse data centers, huh. right? Like what happens if we had a data center in Europe and a data center in India and a data center in um, in the states. And, and, you know, we use multi-master replication, right? So one guy can write a document over here, and it just gets pushed over to the guy over there. Yeah. And the thing that was scary about that with, with Raven was that you discover the fact that there's a problem when you read, not when you write. Interesting. So when yeah. you read, all of a sudden you, you're told you get an exception that basically, oh, there's two versions of this. You need to figure out which one you want. Which normally in, in uh, optimistic locking... When the second guy writes, you get the error. Right. So it, so it was that to me, um, I haven't really thought too much about it because that scares me too much. <laughs> but I, I, I don't, if I don't look, I don't it's think, not there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It almost scares me to think about it. But, but I, um, I, you know, so I think, I think the warm backup thing will work out well for us. So, Carl. Yeah, Richard. You ever embed Excel into an application? Ugh. You know, that's right up there with sticking ice picks in my ears. Nice. Because your end users have to have the right version of Office and all that stuff. Yeah. And it has that extra layer of dependency. What I want is just a way to take all that Excel goodness and plop it right into my .NET application. Well, you reminded me of Farpoint Spread from the old days. Yeah, 20 years ago I used Farpoint Spread, but now, of course, it's Grape City Power Tools Spread. And now, you know, they have this version that's both for ASP.NET and for Windows Forms in one package. Nice. Yeah, it's two different controls, obviously, but it's in one package, so... You bought one, you bought the other. Right. Spread.net from Grape City Power Tools. Smarter components for smarter developers. All right, so, I mean, a great great concept. You've got the warm backup running the other machine, so you have a failover solution, a heck of a lot less expensive than SQL Server, and then... You've got another replication service going to push to SQL Server. How do you actually pick up data out of RavenDB and start pushing it into SQL Server? We're actually not. Well, I guess you could call it replication, but we're doing it ourselves through our own jobs. Okay. So, so we just read. We just act as another client. We have a little batch job that runs every night that just uh, you know scrapes through Raven and uh, you know reads what it needs to read, transforms it into into SQL, mm-hmm. and uh, you know once you've got your nice normalized SQL database with the the, whatever projection it was that you wanted from Raven, we don't take everything out of Raven and push it in there. Right. We only take the stuff that we care about getting BI on. Ah, oh, I so, see. Okay. You know, so we have a selected projection that we pull out of it every night and update that thing, and then we, you know, we can do all sorts of things. W- one thing that a lot of um, subscribers don't realize about Pluralsight is that we have a um, uh, a corporate side to it. So corporate. Um, our individual subscribers just have their own individual subscriptions. But for a corporation that wants to have like a thousand subscriptions, they want to see that they're getting ROI. You know, they're getting some value for their, for their dollar. And so we have all of these reports that we provide for them, about, you know, roll-up reports and things like that. And that just makes a lot more sense to generate that out of SQL. Right. And so we basically have a two-stage process that we do. We pull, we pull our data out of Raven at night, like clip views, for example, all the different clips that people have watched that are in, in these corporate plans, we pull that data out, the raw data um, out of Raven, and push it into um, SQL Server. So we have the raw clip view data. So that goes into our, that's kind of our data warehouse. Think of it that way. That's just like the raw data that we could just go into and just run ad hoc queries if we just wanted to see what was going on on a particular day. Right. And then, then the next step, once we get that data in there, is we run another transform on it and take it out of that database and we push it into something called a report database. And our report database has a, a collection of aggregate data over time. So, you know, as we kind of collapse this data to store it for the long term, we kind of collapse it down into aggregated tables mm-hmm. um, with details for the more recent stuff that's happened. Right. So, you, like, your nat- past 90 days has the detailed stuff, and then you just purely in aggregate for older. Right. Yeah, exactly. And then you, then you start aggregating in bigger chunks as you go out, stuff like that. And is that to save space or for speed? Uh, both. For, for both. Because, okay. um, you know, uh, when we first started doing it, you know, you always design things as simple as you can to start with, right? Simplest thing to go out with. 
Right. And so the simplest thing was originally when we first started doing the corporate the corporate portal stuff was to simply look directly at the clip views and transform, you know, do SQL queries and joins and stuff like that and build the reports directly from that. And that worked great until we started scaling and, and you know, getting the number of subscribers that we have now. And that, that quickly slowed down to the point where it was unusable. Huh. And so that was that was where we started. You know, we broke out the separate report DB, started aggregating the data. So it is very much for speed. And it, and it's also for space because those those individual clip fees are huge. I mean, if you yeah. would see how many we have of those, it's just crazy. Hey, I got to interrupt because you know what time it is, Richard? It's that happy time again. That's right. It's time to give away a Telerik Ultimate Collection to a lucky fan club member. I love doing this. If you don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about the .NET Rocks fan club. You can go to .netrocks.com slash fanpage.aspx to sign up. And uh, every show we give away something. Uh, right now we're giving away Telerik Ultimate Collections, $2,000 worth of software, but it's actually an $8,000 value. Yes. Yeah. And today's winner is Steve Wimmer from Stockholm, Maine. Woohoo! Congratulations, Congratulations Steve. Steve. And, uh, we, you know, stay tuned because we have a lot more stuff to give away, including five grand worth of technology this December. All you got to do is just go sign up. We just want to give stuff away. And it's on the Donnet Rocks website. On the right side, look for the big banner that says win free stuff. Yeah, that's right. That's all you got to say about that? That's all I got to say. (laughs) As you were, gentlemen. (laughs) Let's get back to what we were talking about. Yeah. So is the big thing for you, Keith, the tooling in SQL Server, just the the relational data model and the, the BI software that's out there? Um, no, honestly, the big thing for us, because we don't use a lot of that stuff. I mean, it's it's simple enough for us, the sort of things that we're doing, that we're able to do it just with simple queries and things that we write. Um, but it, it really is just the um, the ability to do ad hoc queries and, you know, I mean, it, it, go, go and try to purchase a, a, a suite of reporting software that works off of a NoSQL database. Yeah. You know yeah, what I'm talking exist. about? So, so uh, the tooling, you're right. The to- it's not necessarily the tooling that comes with SQL Server, but just the fact that I can plug a reporting engine on top of a SQL Server database that, you know, it's the obvious option for reporting. Yeah. Yeah. It, and, and it just sort of works that way. So, yeah. I mean, obviously you got this data in its sort of JSON form coming out of RavenDB. What does the, the sort of load process look like? Do you, do you just pull it raw into tables in SQL Server and then reorganize it on SQL Server or is there some code in between? Well, we have we do, we're big into DDD at Pluralsight, domain-driven design. Okay. And so we have a suite of domain objects that are devoid of tech. Um, they basically just are C sharp, you know, Poco objects. That um, that's our data model. Mm-hmm. That's the that, and we have repositories that that that's, that surface those things to us. And so you know that's where we go to get our data out of Raven. So our night, nightly tasks are just using that same interface that everything else uses to get that sort of stuff right. and then push it into SQL that way. And you load it once a day? Um, yeah, once every night. That happens okay. about about 4 o'clock in the morning uh, mountain time. And is that about having complete days or is it just because that's a quiet time? It's because it was it was originally a quiet time <laughs> back in the day before we had so much international traffic. Now we have... I think we have about half of our traffic comes international. Right. So, right. you know, it's almost, there's almost, it's almost getting to the point where there's not a good time of the day to do that kind of thing. Yeah. You're always busy and it might yeah. be more interesting to just load steadily. Uh, one of the issues I've run into in building reporting systems like this is if I report, if I ever generated a report that had a partial day in it, everybody panicked about that day. That data looked wrong. Right. And so I was very big on let's get a clean cut of a complete u- you know work unit. We work in units of days. I don't want partial days. I want the full last full day in any report. Right. Yeah, we don't we don't have that particular problem. It's it's there's nothing none of our data. I mean, it's really if you look at it it's like, you know, the roll-up reports are like how much usage. Right. You know, it's not really we don't get down to the day level. We we kind of some get we stop at the month level anyway, so. Okay. Yeah, I and mean, I mean different Problems have different resolutions in that respect too, right? And well, we, I mean, we do have the issue with having, you know, figuring out how to make sure that we can close off an aggregate month, right? That you actually have all the data loaded. Yeah, I mean, we just take a super simple approach to that. We basically just, just, uh, you know, just tear down the last two months. Okay. Every night, 
And then we build that from scratch and, and update those. And then anything, anything prior to that is just left alone. It's considered finished. Okay. So you're actually deleting data out of the database and reloading it? Um, let me see. Well, it depends on the table. If it, if it's a table that is small, if it's something that's, that's relatively small, yeah, that's what we just clobber it and restart it. Yeah. If not, if it's something that's big, like our user profiles, for example, um, then, then we synchronize. So you're actually going and checking records, making sure they're the same, that's the whole behavior? Yep. Yeah. I pull them out of both sides and then compare and then, you know, figure out the differences and put the differences in. Right. Yeah. That take, it does take time to do that. And yeah. And I hope I got this clear that, so you're, you, what writes the SQL statements that actually loads the data? Is this this your client? Yeah, it's our client. Okay. So it's pulling up this JSON blob from Raven and then composing it into different insert statements, essentially, or, you know, update deletes. Yeah. And I mean, with Raven, it's not, you don't really think about JSON very much unless you're doing HTTP requests to the server. Generally, most people, I think, are going to use .NET. And so you have a nice unit of work pattern with a session and stuff. So you're going to get, a deserialized object on the other end. Right, right. So, you, I mean, you basically have a code-centric ORM there. Correct, yeah. Uh, it's just that it's not, in the, it's not in the transactional pipeline. It is a background process. That's right. Yeah, and that's what I like about this whole idea, is let's get that ugliness, because we always have ugliness somewhere, get, get a nice little can that doesn't hurt people. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> we, we, we actually, um, the, that's one of the challenges, like I was saying earlier in the show, was um, when the database is being hit, because it's being hit at night, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not like at 4 o'clock in the morning, our time, there's nobody hitting our site now, because we got folks all over the world that are, that are, that are using our service. Um, right. So one of the challenges that we've had is figuring out how to enumerate that and, and feel like we're getting, we're not... It's bad enough if you miss something. I mean, yeah. it's not a, it's honestly for the sorts of stuff we're doing, it's not a huge deal if one night we miss it because the next night we'll pick it up again, right? Sure, yeah. Especially for aggregate data. It's not a big deal if you have little holes or something in your data. But what might freak you out at some point is if you all of a sudden get a duplicate. Mm-hmm. And that happens. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that and, ha- and, and duplicate management's got to be a big deal. Yeah, and so so you know we we one of the things that we had what one we we wrote something called a Raven firehose. <laughs> we we literally and it's actually kind of interesting, you know, you you look at you think about like we deal with objects, right? That we don't deal with JSON or anything like I was saying. So but we want to have a firehose of objects that we're pulling out of Raven and and it's kind of we've treated it like a forward only cursor. Yeah. And we actually have an interface called iFirehose that that has one method on it, get next batch. Nice. And it's it's got a type, you know, it's it's parameterized and and you say how many objects you want, it gives it to you and, and or actually it doesn't. I think I think it just gives you the next batch and you just deal with it. And yeah. that's an I enumerable that you can walk over. And um that that kind of deals with the problem of you know, not knowing what kind of an I enumerable you're going to get back from something. Mm-hmm. You, you ever thought about that problem where it's like somebody gives you an I enumerable, you're not sure whether or not it's safe to enumerate over it twice? Yeah, that's an interesting problem. I mean, if it's a Raven firehose, right, if you were to call count on it, oh my God, can you just imagine? Yeah, no, you wouldn't want to do that. That's a mistake. Yeah, you, but, but, but I enumerable doesn't communicate that, right? Yeah. You have no idea how to use it. So we've, in our system, we've, we've decided that any I enumerable we have is safe. It's always an in-memory collection. It's always materialized as, as an in-memory collection. Is that just controlling the batch size so it'll fit? Well, perhaps. But, the, but well, then we have this notion of the fire hose, right? That's what we hand out when we're going to do a lazy evaluation that's going to be expensive, like going over the network. Right. And so every time you call get next batch, that gives you a materialized collection of stuff that you know it's safe to work with in memory and use all of your link, link queries to your heart's delight, use count, use you know, aggregates, whatever you want. Yeah, but it's materialized locally now. It's in memory, and you can work with it. That that's correct. Does the actual size of a given batch vary a lot? Well, that gives us the choice, right? right. Our client gets to choose what that's going to be, depending on the scenario. So, so we wrote this fire hose, right? That's going that's going to do this for us, and that that's kind of um, it's it's kind of abstracted that detail, mm-hmm. and then we keep an identity map in there, so we make sure that we're not going to hand you a duplicate. That's how we've dealt with the problem. Okay. Yeah, because I could do it on the relational end as well, but you're doing it sort of upfront. That only in the batch request you're sort of deciding what to do with the duplicate. 
Well, the fire hose is kind of keeping the the, the thing that's the thing that's managing the overall transfer of the data is making yeah. sure that it doesn't hand out a duplicate during that right. session because that's a forward only cursor and and okay. it does ha- it has to happen on the client side because you know that's that's the it, we're a client to Raven and Raven is giving us duplicates for every once in a while. And what's what's funny about this is we're not even we're not even um, enumerating over an index in in Raven. We're we're literally going directly to the documents collection because that that seems to be the most stable way to get an enumeration. That's um, interesting. And it, I mean, this is all read only exercise anyway. So I'm trying to understand where the impact is on the rights on the back end. There are they blocking rights? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, so on our ETL job, we're reading from Raven and writing to SQL. Right. But in, but you were concerned about when to run this job because you have transactional load all the time. So I'm trying to figure out how those two interact. When the when you've got transactional rights happening on the Raven side and you've got the firehose grabbing batches of documents uh, mm-hmm. uh, in a read, do the two block each other? Oh no 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 they don't block each other at all. Right. No. But you're sacrificing consistency. You could be mid write when a read happens. I don't believe that that's the case. That's okay. not my understanding. I mean, if that's true, then it's then it should be blocking, right? Well, I would imagine that the. I mean, if you think about, it would block for the only the duration of time that it would be making that one statement, right? Like, yeah. you know, you imagine it. I imagine. I, I don't know. I haven't looked at the source code for Raven, but I would imagine that it's writing that the the incoming JSON out yeah. to a log. Right and getting everything set up, getting everything ready. Like you know, we're all, we're still handing out the old version at this point. Yep. And then at some point, once we're once everything is ready to go, then we flip the bit and and switch it over. So it's not like we're locking for any duration of time. Yeah, you'd hope not, but yeah, you know, that's an interesting challenge. It might be something I got to rattle Iende's chain about because it's really an implementation detail. Yeah. You know, that that I could keep serving the out of date record, even though I know I have a new one. You know, in SQL Server, you actually view through the log. So as soon as that arrives to the log, you get the new record. And and you get an e-tag with it, too. So, I mean, if you're worried about, if you're worried about you know, that changing, you do have an e-tag that you can look at. Right. Um, and, that, and if you're going to do, you know, concurrency management, like any sort of optimistic concurrency, that's what you use to do it. So, I mean, I think that's all covered. And we really haven't, we really haven't seen much contention problems um, with that. Um, it really, honestly, the trick has just been just trying to, <laughs> we we were just kind of surprised when we enumerated over the collection and we were getting duplicates during one enumeration. That was kind of, that kind of surprised us. And we're, we're still not sure we understand why that's happening. Yeah, but, that's an interesting problem. And I wonder if it's one of these writing while reading sort of scenarios. It very well could be. It very well could be. Yeah. It sounds like a test to be created. Like, let's actually force that situation and see what we get. It's a hell of a problem to solve there. I mean, talk about debugging nightmare. But, you know, and this is one of those things we just take for granted. SQL Server has this nailed, and it's had it nailed for years. And the behavior is extremely well known. And, in fact, you can adjust the behavior with specific settings, although the correct answer most of the time is don't mess with this. Right. Because the way it works works pretty reliably. But, you know, this is where it matters. When you, you know, you moved up to something that's got some velocity now, you've got to figure this out. And if you're worried about that, what you know, you end up either using a snapshot isolation mode or you end up taking locks. Yep. You know, and and either one of those has issues, right? Yeah. Whereas, you know, it, it, if you're trying to build a system like that 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 needs to have transactional, you know, integrity and things like that, where you're writing a lot, I I, I don't think Raven's a good choice for that necessarily. Yeah, and and you get into the business case of how important is integrity. What is the issue if we serve up? duplicate data or out-of-date data? Like, does it actually cause harm or not? Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it, in any system where you have eventual consistency, you, you know, your requirements have to be such that that, you know, that that works for you. Yeah. And that, it, and that eventually when it gets consistent, that will be okay. And that there's a possibility for looking at the current day that this is wrong. Right. Oh, and, 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 that, and that it's not wrong enough that it's going to be a problem. No, I mean, that's, that's and it's not going it to be wrong forever to. either, but it might exactly. be a little wrong right now. Yep. Yep. And I, you know, where I get into trouble with this, Keith, is you show a VP of sales some sales figures and they're out by a couple of dollars. And the next day when he looks at report again, they're different. Now he loses confidence in the system Mm -hmm. because the numbers changed. And that, you know, that part of that's an education process, part of that sort of recognizing, you know what? I'm not going to show you today's data because 
it's going to rattle you if it's even slightly wrong. So you're exactly. going to be, angry. I'd rather have you angry with me for not being able to deliver today's data for you till tomorrow so that you don't have that loss of confidence. Yeah. I mean, ultimately it comes back to adjusting your requirements. And, and if you can't do that, if your requirements are such, such that you need exact data right now, I need to lock it. I need yeah. to make sure it's stable. Then you shouldn't be using that sort of thing. You know, yeah. use SQL Server. And, and some of this is education too. You know, you're dealing with mortals here and can they understand? I can give you this really, really fast, but you know, you're going to have to deal with some, a little bit of uncertainty. Right. Uh, I, I use Expedia as an example a lot in this, more of a caching story, but it's like 99% of the time Expedia works super fast. And once in a while it sells you, it offers you a ticket it doesn't have. Mm-hmm. And the occasional time where you go to buy the ticket, it comes back and goes, ah, sorry, I have, I don't have that ticket, but I have this one just like it. It's only a hundred dollars more. Right. Uh, <laughs> is worth the punish, the, the benefit of 99% of the time you get the ticket and you get it really quickly. Right. Right. It's like our, it's like our Android player right now. We could yeah. take, we could take a very conservative approach like a lot of companies do and only ship to devices that we've tested on. But we'd rather open it up to everybody and let everybody have the chance of using it. So there's so many devices out there. And then just, you know, there are people who, there are a few people who have trouble and, you know, we just try to work it out. Yeah. Compensate. Now, these are good problems to have and they are business discussions, which I appreciate, not just technical discussions. Right. Well, guys, it's been a pleasure listening to you talk on, uh, about <laughs> <laughs> a couple of data geeks. Yeah, no, it's cool. Very cool. And, uh, it, it, I just can't imagine the kind of challenges that that must be. I, I, I'm just listening to you talk about that last problem there where it, it, the iteration problem just can't, how do you debug that? Yeah. That just, that's, that's a nightmare scenario. Well, I mean, it's just one of those things where you just have to design your system knowing that that happens sometimes. And, yeah. and you know, it's... Just be you know, flexible. You, just, you, be, you have to be flexible. You have to change your requirements. You have to design yeah. your requirements around what you can build. I mean, if we had different requirements, like, you know, we were keeping people alive based on this stuff. Then, right. You right. know? Yeah. All right, guys. I think that's a show. I think so. Keith Brown, cool. thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And uh, we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. Hey, thanks for listening. And remember, Pluralsight.com is where you can get 200 minutes of free video training by guests on .NET Rocks and other experts in the field. Pluralsight.com. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a 